Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. The water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. He said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You have correctly said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you have now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews, but an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would be at work in us as your word is preached. I pray that you would make us humble to receive it. Father, that you would grant to us repentance as it rebukes us. And Father, we pray that we would be strengthened by your spirit, to receive it in faith. Lord, thank you for your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. So we return to this portion of John's gospel that focuses on the Samaritan woman at the well. Two weeks ago, we thought about that, uh, what, what Ryle called the aggressive friendliness 
of Jesus, aggressive friendliness. That's something that we should keep in our minds, aggressive friendliness. He is concerned for this woman's well-being, and because of that, he's willing to broach the subject of her sin. Ryle points to this style, calling it that aggressive friendliness. Our witness should be born of the fact that we are sinners. We talked about that. Yet sinners who have found the truth, right? The truth in the word. Now we continue on in this this history here. We stopped at verse uh, 18 last time where Jesus says, you have had five, five husbands and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. Uh, The woman responds then, and she says, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Uh, In that statement, she's admitting that Jesus has gotten her right. Jesus has gotten everything right that he's just said. He's gone, she has gone from man to man and is now living with yet another man. Um, He... How did Jesus know this? Well, he, I mean, he hasn't met her before. He hasn't been living in Samaria as far as we know. He knows it because he is God. He knows it because he is God, and, and so he is able to look upon the heart. And he knows it in the same manner that he knew uh, that what people were reasoning in their hearts, right? He had that knowledge, that perception. The woman perceived that she is in the presence of one who who has a knowledge of God. And so she calls him a prophet. What she doesn't yet understand is that she is in the very presence of God, right? She's in the very presence of God himself. Yet after the woman says that she she thinks he's a prophet, she, she goes on to talk about what? Seems like she goes on to talk about something else very quickly. She goes, she goes on to talk about that Samaritan problem, right? The thing we talked about two, two weeks ago. The woman says, our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and you people, the you there is plural, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Remember that the Samaritans had intermarried with the people of the nations which surrounded Israel. And and they had also set up that place of worship right on Mount Gerizim. And, and their, their liturgy was a mishmash of, of pagan and Jewish uh, practices. Some even argue that it was Sanballat, or Sanballat, who built this rival temple. Um, at this point, though, the people still point to, the people of Samaria still point to that temple with pride that's up on the hill of of Gerizim, even though that temple is just a ruins at this point. It's been ruins for a long time. Now, is this woman changing the subject? Right? You've had five husbands. I think you're a prophet. Now, what about you Jews? <laughs> How about them cowboys, right? I mean, she's like going on to, to, to is she going on? It seems so from from a confrontation about her husband, she shifts to the subject of the Samaritan and Jewish divide, or perhaps, perhaps it's not a shift. Right? If this Jew is a prophet who knew her life, what is she to do? Right? This Jew is standing before her. They usually don't have interaction, but she, she's, 
she perceives that he's a prophet and she's just, he's just laid open her whole life. And so what is she to do? She, I think she's beginning to think, well, where is the truth to be found? I mean, where, where, where do I find truth? Where do I go worship? What am I supposed to do now? This prophet from the Jews is before me. What do I do now? And so, in other words, if the prophets like Jesus are arising from the Jews, could the Samaritans' syncretistic worship be wrong? And she wants to know what to do. So I don't, I don't think there's a disconnect. I think she's just sharp, right? And so she just goes on to the, the pertinent question. Jesus follows her into that conversation. He's already said what needs to be said about her sin. He's willing to move on. That has had its effect. Now he willingly enters into the subject of worship. And she, like most of us before we were converted, thinks worship is more about where we are than who we worship. Before we're converted, we think it's about what we do, where we are, than the object of that worship. She's, she's a formalist, in other words. Rather than faith, she thinks legitimate worship is a function of where she worships. She wants a cathedral to worship in. She wants that place. She wants those tall ceilings. She wants the stained glass in which to worship. She thinks that location is more important than knowing the truth and having the spirit. She's, you know, she's that, that hunter dude that, says, that goes out into the woods and says that that's his sanctuary. You don't need no church. I worship in the woods. She's the esthete who believes the architecture of the church is what makes your worship worship. The architecture of the church is what makes your worship legitimate. Uh, she's at the point where she is merely concerned about external things, external forms. She's a traditionalist. Right, who thinks godliness is retaining what her fathers have done, right? those Samaritan fathers, rather, even, even if there's no scriptural support for her view. Tradition. Today, she might argue for hymns, for organs, for alcohol and communion, for singing from hymn books to formal attire, right? All externals, all externals that lead many to miss the, the sine qua non. Do you know what sine qua non means? The example, the highest example, right? She, all these ex externals that lead to us to miss the heart of worship, which is what? The word of God, the word of God. Tradition often clouds our judgment on matters of worship. Right? And her, she, she has not been led well, and the Samaritans have misled her. But now she's like, okay, what do I do? What do I do now? And Jesus then teaches her and us about worship. He says, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain, and then the astonishing thing, nor in Jerusalem. Think about that. Nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Well, that's got to be blowing her mind. I mean, if the apostles were with him, the apostles would have been like, huh? Nor in Jerusalem. 
So the first instruction by Jesus on worship is to remove its quality from location. Right? Not here in Samaria with this false temple, not even in Jerusalem, there will be those who worship the Father. Jesus is looking forward right now. Jesus is still prophesying as a prophet. Jesus is looking forward for seeing that in his sacrifice would end the need for any further sacrifice. It makes Jerusalem and the temple completely superfluous. Right? The shadows that existed in the Old Testament sacrifices would be done away with when Jesus died on the tree as that final and perfect sacrifice. So after Jesus dies, there is no more reason to return to the shadows. The substance has come, and the sacrifices have ended once and for all. No more reason to go up to Jerusalem for, for those three yearly sacrifices. No more reason. No more reasons to shed the blood of animals, right? Because the blood of Christ has been shed and it is of much higher value. No more repetition necessary. Certainly there was no need of this Samaritan temple, right? But Jesus goes beyond that to say that what was coming was even an end to the need of the temple in Jerusalem Access to the Father would now be found in, in Athens, in Rome, in Britain, in India, in China. Access to God would be in all of those places. Jesus is essentially telling her that there was no reason to get in an argument about Samaria versus Jerusalem. Both places are superfluous. Hard for the Samaritan woman and the Jews of Jesus' own nation to give up those shadows, though. Right? Even while they rebelled against God, they used to say, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Even as they're spurning God in heaven, they're boasting in their tradition. Temple of the Lord. So easy for us, too, to get wrapped up in externals. Ryle on this verse says, to bring into the Christian church holy places and sanctuaries and altars and priests and sacrifices and gorgeous vestments, clothing, and the like is to dig up that which has been long buried and to turn to candles for light under the noonday sun. Right? Everything is so much better and Jesus has fulfilled these things, and his sun shines, and we would go back to, right, the, the, the sun is shining in its fullness, and we'd go back to one tiny little candle. Most of those things we don't care much about, right, the, the altars and sanctuaries investments, but each of us does care about the things and circumstances of worship, and the things we care about are usually those things we grew up with, Right? I mean, I grew up singing those old southern gospel tunes. And the, the, the implied statement when you say that to your pastor, who then has to figure out how to respond politely, is, is and, and that's what you want us to sing all the time everywhere. Right? Because it gives you the, the vibes. Right? And... And when we do that, those, when, we, when we make 
when we elevate those circumstances of worship, then we make that rather than the truth, the criteria by which we judge the quality of our worship. Right? They, that ought not to be. That ought not to be. Jesus says, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. Okay, here, here he's saying that there's a distinction between the Samaritan syncretism and the Jewish temple worship. He's willing to still acknowledge that there's a big difference between these two. Um, and they at least, the Jews at least had directives from God. And were, though poorly, remember Jesus has just turned the tables over in the temple. They have not been doing well, right? They have been poorly attempting to follow at least God's directives. The Samaritans had no such sanction in the word of God for their worship, for this temple being built, for anything they're doing. And the Jews had their own problems of rebellion, but at least they could point to the scriptures for what they did or neglected to do. Right? In, in, in that sense, then, salvation is from the Jews. As Jesus says here, well, even though it had been corrupted by wicked Pharisees, it was still the route by which the Father sent his Son. Right? Jesus belonged to what? The house and lineage of David. These sacrifices of the Old Testament pointed forward to Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. The scriptures pointed this out, and so salvation very, very organically is from the Jews. Then, verse 24, Jesus, alluding to the effect of his own work, says, But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers, the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Here then is the answer to the, woman, to the Samaritan woman's statement. Right? Here is what I believe she's, she's questioning him about and her, why she shifted to talk about worship. Jesus is giving her a straight-up answer about true worshipers. True worshipers, says Jesus, will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. True worshipers are not merely those that we find that, that find the holy spot, either Jerusalem or Samaria. No, true worshipers worship the Father in spirit and in truth. It is not the external that matters, particularly place. It is the internal that matters. So if worship in spirit and truth points to the internal state of the worshiper, what specifically does this statement mean? What is worship in spirit and what is worship in truth? Well, Ryle has an answer. He says, the word spirit must not be taken to mean the Holy Spirit. Some of you would probably argue with that. But the intellectual or mental part of man in contradistinction to the material or carnal part of man Worship in spirit is heart worship in contradistinction to all formal, material, carnal worship consisting of ceremonies, offerings, sacrifices, and the like. In other words, we do not worship in spirit when we worship with merely our lips while our hearts are far from God. 
This was the condemnation God had for the Israelites and Jesus had for the Pharisees. This people honors me with their lips, their flesh, right? The carnal part of them. They just honor me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. That's the condemnation the prophets bring to Israel. They're constantly talking about Yahweh. They're constantly talking about God, but their heart is not in it at all. We fail to worship in spirit when we go through the motions of worship with no faith in God's power, with no faith in, in, in God's love for us, no warmth of heart in response to Christ's sacrificial love. We fail to worship in spirit when we are cold-hearted in our worship. We fail to worship in spirit when it is a chore to pay attention to the preached word. Right? We fail to worship in spirit when we have no sense of God's holiness before which we all stand. Right? And no sense of our own unholiness. We we mumble through our prayers of confession and let our minds wander when the word is preached. We have a sense, we have, have so little sense of the transcendent power of God when we enter into his courts. And that's when we start thinking, man, a cathedral would really help. You know, if we had gr- granite and tall ceilings and glorious stained glass, I mean, we have some, it's not glorious, then, then my heart would be in worship. You know, if my pastor wore a tie and a bow at that, well, then, then there would be some solemnity, right? Then, then we could worship. And if, I mean, ironically, the, the elders are, are going to get together to discuss wine and communion and switching to it. But that's an external. I don't really care about it. Right? Because if we have wine and communion, it becomes our boast and lack faith. God abominates it. I prefer wine. But that's about as far as my argument goes. But this is what we do, right? We, we get hooked on these externals and we don't care about the fact that we're cold-hearted, right? Give me the hymn book and I'll mumble cold-heartedly through my hymns like I did holding a sheet of paper. And God hates that. Formalists make a principle of externals. You know, and so that's, that's often the problem. I think the, the other problem with us not worshiping in spirit is we are just lazy and lukewarm toward our incredible God. We're just lazy. Right? King David expresses what it means to worship in spirit by rejecting the external, embracing the internal, right there in his, his psalm of repentance, Psalm 51. He says, For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. Right? Those externals, you do not delight. And it's mind-boggling because they had to do those things and God commanded them. 
And here he is, an inspired word saying, you do not delight in sacrifices. Otherwise, I would give it, you are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. The heart, the spirit, is what God cares about. We're fat and lazy and satisfied and at ease. How often am I unprepared for worship? Right? And so I come here and go through the motions. I didn't prepare by praying ahead of the service or by meditating on his word, by getting my family prepared to worship the night before, or by, by just a little bit, setting my mind on the glory of Christ, which we're about to proclaim before the whole world in this service. And so I come to worship, and all I'm up for is going through the motions. What's next on the bulletin? Okay, blah, blah, blah. And I don't think about what I'm singing. I just, the words, blah, blah, blah. That ought not be. That should not be. If we worship in spirit and truth, that won't be. Right? The Father desires worshipers who worship in spirit, whose heart are, hearts are animated by His glory, who love to sing His praises. Right? He, he sits enthroned on those praises. Don't give Him a, a plastic chair to sit on. Give Him a throne to sit on. Right? We... He, he wants us to love to sing His praises. He wants you and I to hunger for the word preached, right? Who love the labor of worship because their minds are filled with the glory of Jesus Christ. If your worship is not inwardly intense, you can bet that you are merely going through the motion of worship and God is not pleased with that. He wants more from you. He wants more from you. Stop blaspheming the Lord by your lukewarmth worship. He wants more from you. He's seeking. He's seeking those who, who, who worship Him in spirit and truth. He wants more from you. He wants your love. He wants all of it. You know, it says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Nowhere should that be manifested more profoundly than in the worship of him. You should just be boiling forth with love for God and worship. And I won't say it. I shouldn't say that. And and what about worship and truth? Okay, that's in spirit. What about, what about worship in truth? The word of God is truth. All right, we are to worship him according to what he commands in his word. We don't get to make things up or add ceremonies we like, smoke and incense. We, we don't get to add those. The worship of the woman had up to that point been founded upon the Samaritans' own whims. They just made stuff up for their worship, 
right? And not the Word of God. Jesus directs her back to the Word of God, and the Word instructs her that her only access to the Father is through what? Through the Son, right? Through faith in the Son. That's her only access to the Father, but that's the access that belongs to the whole world. Now, Jesus says, for such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. This could mean that the Father desires, has an intense desire for people to worship him in spirit and truth. But, but it's, it's, I think it's even deeper than that. I think we could say that the whole purpose of the Spirit's work is to make us into those who worship in this manner. That is what the Spirit is doing. Right? In other words, Hendrickson Hendrickson says the father is, as it were, searching for them, but in the sense that he keeps on intensely yearning for his elect in order that he may make them such worshipers. Right? God is going about the whole earth seeking those who would worship in this manner, and that's why he calls people to himself, so that his name might be praised. To put it another way, the Father works through His Spirit in giving that new birth and in sanctification to make people these kinds of worshipers. Have you thought about your sanctification in that manner? If God is jealous for His own glory, and He is, right, He will work in His people to make them joyous, heartfelt worshipers of Him. That is the purpose of your sanctification that you may be the kind of worshipers that God desires, that you may give yourself with a clear conscience and a love-filled heart to your Creator. Man's chief end, right, is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. To glorify God, enjoy Him forever. And God works faith and holiness into the lives of His saints so that they might live that way and that He might be worshipped in a way that corresponds with his awesome glory. If you think about it, all of history, all of human history is God's work to make himself worshippers that do it in the proper way. That's all of history. That's the reason for everything. One day, we will all understand this, when every soul witnesses the return of King Jesus on the clouds. What we see in our lives, if God is at work in us, is this. We will glory in Jesus Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. If God is at work sanctifying us, we will glory in Jesus Christ. We will put no confidence in the flesh. What will we see if God is not at work in us? Lips that honor God, but hearts that are far away from Him. Worship in spirit and truth looks like a people filled with the glory of Jesus Christ, in awe of His his grace and kindness, in humble fear of his glorious majesty, right? With a burning hunger for what he said in his word. A burning hunger to hear him speak. And so a life without true worship will boil down to this, right? You, can, you, you will either worship God in spirit and in truth, or you will, you will do what? You'll live for yourself. 
you'll make so you you'll you'll glorify something, but you will glorify self. Right? A life without true worship boils down to this, living for self, asserting your own value, boasting in your own accomplishments, orienting your life around your own glory. Right? In short, it's worshiping yourself. A life of true worship boils down to this, honoring the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, asserting His value, boasting in His works and His accomplishments, and orienting your whole life around His glory. It's God herself. God herself. I mean, is this the way you think about it? Is it really that the atheist is worshiping self? Aren't they just worshiping nothing? Right? Aren't they just neutral blank slate sort of waiting to be have something to worship? <laughs> no, everything they do in their life is self-glorifying. Right? Everything they do in their life is sin. Everything they do in their life is to to um protect themselves and honor themselves and lift themselves up and intellectually, you know, uh, dominate over other people, right? And they end up worshiping self. And then in comes the Holy Spirit, renovates a man's heart, and, and instantly he comes off of self, he despises himself, he thinks about how incredibly wretched it was that I made an idol of myself, which is about the lowest thing you could possibly worship in all of creation, which is a person, a man. And then in comes that spirit and renovates him and all he wants, all he wants then is to worship the one true living God. Verse 24, Jesus teaches us about his Father. He is spirit. There are very few statements like this statement that are point-blank definitions of God's nature who he is, right? That God is a spirit is a fundamental truth of Scripture. He is a spirit and therefore he does not have a body like man. He is omnipresent because a spirit and so is not absent from one place while he is present somewhere else. God is unique substance distinct from the created universe. He is spirit. He is not material. That being the case, that God is spirit, what does that have to do with this discussion about worship with the Samaritan woman? Well, this is the very basis of our worship and the kind of worship that we are to give ourselves to. Herman Bovink, in his gigantic tome, writes, Maintaining our confession that God's nature is spiritual is a unique way in a unique way, is very important because the whole character of our worship and service of God rests on it. Worship in spirit and truth is based on the spirituality of God. It alone, in principle and forever, spells the elimination of all, what does he say next? Image worship. It spells the demise of worshiping by images. In other words, because God is spirit, that he does not have body and, and, and is, is not visible, 
our worship should not be based upon bodies and visibilities. Right? This is the second commandment, which forbids making images and bowing down to them. Now, some may argue, may want to argue that Jesus does, not, does have a body. Right? You've heard the argument. Jesus does have a body, and therefore it's perfectly fine for us to use images of him in worship. But that's to ignore what Jesus is saying in this very passage. Right? He's like, God is spirit, worship in spirit and truth. And they're like, but you have a body. We're going to worship images of you. I mean, he's just taught us on worship. He's just taught us that the fundamental reality of our worship is that God is spirit. In this passage where Jesus is directly addressing worship, he makes the point that the Father is a spirit and that that is the very heart of how we worship. Couple that with the obvious rejection of images of God in the second commandment, along with the fact that all images of God are just figments of the imagination of men and do not say anything true about God's character or his appearance. And I just don't know how anybody can justify images of any of the persons of the triune God. They are always false testimonies of what God really is. And here is Jesus teaching this woman about true worship and true worshipers. And he mentions that the nature of God is spirit. He's been moving the woman to leave behind the place, the externals of worship, and moving her toward the how of worship and the internals. And she was... She was thinking that a rundown temple on Mount Gerizim and a more glorious temple in Jerusalem, and Jesus confronts her with, no, not those places, but this way in spirit and truth. Because the very character of God is one of spirit. God cares about the way we worship because he wants his true character to be praised, and images cannot ever capture the true character of God because he is spirit. To set up an image to represent God is to debase God. Thomas Watson says, What greater disparagement to the infinite God than to represent him by that which is finite, the living God by that which is without life, and the maker of all things by that which is made? And I would add, the, you know, the God who is spirit by that which can be seen. He goes on and says, Watson goes on, he says, It is impossible to make a picture of the soul or to paint angels because they are of a spiritual nature, much less can we paint God by an image who is the infinite, uncreated spirit. So enough on that, but that is one of the things that we must take from this passage, is images are out, right? So don't put them in children's Bibles. Please. Don't put them in children's Bibles. The Orthodox will rip them out. Those who care about this passage... Those who care about how God is worshipped will dispense with them, right? And then who wants a book with ripped out pages? That's just, that's unseemly, right? I do not enjoy that. Anyway, enough. 
Jesus concludes with repetition of what he said previously. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Twice he says that, bookending this section. And wonderfully, the woman seems to be cluing in to what Jesus is saying. She's getting it, right? And that's glorious. Now instead of her mind going off to temples and cities, she begins to think about the promised Messiah. Her mind's now going to Scripture, Right? And she says, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Indeed, he will. Jesus taught her about the living water. She mistook him to be talking about magic water. Jesus taught her and, uh, about her sin. She was pricked in conscience and began to uh, think about worship. Jesus taught her about his father and how she was meant to worship him. He taught her about the nature of the Father and how um, that should direct her worship. She again was provoked to think on this Jesus who was before her, and her mind goes to the Messiah. It's as if the Spirit is blowing where he pleases, right? And, And opening her eyes to the glory of the one she's talking to. Indeed, she expresses her hope that the Messiah would set all these things straight, Not like the Jews wanted him to come and just dominate Rome. She wants him to come and set things straight for worship of God. And then it should make goosebumps form on your arms and necks. Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. I who speak to you am he. There's no clearer statement in all of Scripture about Jesus' fulfillment of all of those Old Testament prophecies of the coming Messiah. This is point blank stated. Right? He just explicitly says it. He doesn't reserve that announcement for the king's palace. He doesn't reserve that announcement for the, the muckety-mucks up in Jerusalem, the, the, the Sanhedrin. He doesn't reserve it for some glorious statement in the city of David, Jerusalem. He announces it to this sinful, confused woman. He meant, you know, he, he meant as he rested from a journey that had made him tired. It's, it's, it's glorious. It's so It's so humble. And that proves to us this point, that it is the sick sinner that Jesus is most concerned about. He came for the sick, not for the healthy. He ate with tax collectors and sinners. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Right? This shows us the gracious character of Jesus Christ. He came to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost of all. Perhaps your life has been like that, the woman at the well, spent going from one sin to the next. There's hope. There's hope for you. you and, and you should know that from this passage, you should know that from this passage with the woman at the well, this woman of Samaria. Jesus still dispenses his living water. Right? Amen.